What is design thinking? More importantly, how does it fit into compliance? Join two fans of design thinking for the compliance profession, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and Karsten Tams, ethical business architect and founder of Emigence LLC, as they explore how the compliance profession can use design thinking to more fully operationalize a compliance program. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the latest edition of the Compliance Podcast Network, Design Thinking and Compliance. In this episode, we discuss the design thinking framework and the power of co-creation. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Karsten Tams for episode two of Design Thinking and Compliance. Karsten, uh, first of all, uh, welcome back. And uh, today I wanted to maybe start to talk about not so much what is design thinking, but we really discussed, I think in episode one, why we both believe the human element can be so powerful as both an engagement tactic and an effectiveness, a business process effectiveness improvement for design thinking. So with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome back. It's good to be back with you, Tom. So Karsten, um, maybe we could start off by uh, focusing on the user, because the first time I did a design thinking class or uh, I guess sprint, um, it really struck me how different this was because after we brainstormed, it became all about the user. So could you maybe start there and why you see that as such a powerful part of this social engineering tool? Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, so this brings us to what in design thinking is referred to as human-centered design. And this is one really of the core principles uh, that is critical to understand when, uh, when, when learning about design thinking. Um, and um, and as, you, as you rightly say, uh, in design thinking, we put the user at the center. And I think this is an interesting pivot especially for us in, in the ethics and compliance uh, field, uh, because sometimes, you know, when we design tools, codes of conduct, trainings, uh, ethics websites, uh, what have you, um, you know, we don't necessarily always start by thinking, what, who's the user, what do the user need? Rather, we are driven often by a regulatory um, uh, uh, impetus, if you will, you know, uh, the regulator tells us, okay, adequate procedures required to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so this drives drives our design work. Um, the principle of human-centered design really says we need to put the user at the center, and that means that one of the um, uh, key uh, key um, elements of design is is to develop empathy for the user, and this this has brought um, anthropological um, methods and theories into the the area of design. Um, so it's become you know one one of the techniques that's being used is to really uh, get close to the user, study the user, shadow the user, see what they are doing, how they're using a certain service or product, and the, as they go about their daily lives. Um, to, to, to really understand and kind of walk in their shoes um, to, to see what their needs are, how the solution is or is not working. Um, and, um, and this is, this is uh, absolutely a key, key element if we are concerned about creating ethics and compliance solutions 
that that are engaging to users. Uh, if that's our goal, then we have to create codes, we have to create trainings, we have to create other ethics and compliance solutions that don't so much meet our needs, but that really respond to a need that the user has as it relates to maintaining ethics in the organization. Um, so, and, and once we make that pivot, we change the perspective in this way, it's also an incredibly powerful tool of thinking about designing um, our solutions in new ways, in better ways, more engaging ways. So really think about innovation in our space. Carson, let me pick up on a couple of things that you raised there. The first is, um, I don't know if you have read this book, but one of the seminal books in American fiction after 1960 is To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, one of my favorite books in America, we all read it in high school, is required reading. And uh, one of the key lines in that book is Atticus Finch tells his daughter, Scout, you, you can't understand a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes. And so I'm not going to say life is following art, but the observation uh, that uh, Atticus Finch made, I think, is absolutely prescient for design thinking. But it also really takes it in a little bit different direction. And here I'm going to ask you to, to maybe uh, talk to us a little bit about the difference in the ways that compliance programs grew up in the uh, United States and Europe. So in the United States, uh, uh, particularly in the first decade of this dec uh, decade of this century, compliance programs were seen as reactionary. They were seen as preventing an illegal act from taking place. They were seen as very rules-oriented, written by lawyers, for lawyers. Here are the rules. Don't cross the rules. Um, and indeed, when I did training, many salesmen would say, just tell me the rules, Tom. I don't need to know the why. Uh, it, but at that time, it seemed to me the European approach was somewhat different. It was much less rules-based and more values-based. And so there would be a discussion of what are our company values and our values, you know, whether it be honesty, doing business ethically and in compliance, um, transparency, accountability, a, a wide variety of values. And from those values, then you would have a, a, a much broader and perhaps even more engaging discussion about what did that mean in the real world of business. And the thing that struck me about your remarks in design thinking is that uh, design thinking does not take a rules-based approach. It does not say we expect you to violate the rules. We expect you to violate the law. Here's the way not to do that. Uh, it turns it around to say we're going to help you to do business with some guardrails, some guideposts, or, or something that is going to work for the way you do business in the real world. So Number one, if, if my recitation of perhaps the difference in American and European training models is correct, um, maybe how, uh, how have you seen that European values model work and why that, uh, that part of design thinking you feel is also an ad advantage? Uh, yeah, you touch on so many, so many great points uh, and maybe, yeah, let me, let me add my my five cents to uh, you know in perspective on, on, on those same same points um, 
So I, I, I do agree with you that I, um, you know, I think that in the early stages of, of, our, of our profession, the ethics and compliance field, um, the focus has been very much on, on constraining unwanted behavior, delinquency, uh, uh, you know, uh, violations of the law. Um, and, you know, I think that's been a natural reflex considering, you know, that it was a response to major uh, corporate um, scandals, compliance failures. I'm thinking of Enron and WorldCom and what have you. So um, there's an initial impulse to focus on malfeasance and, you know, how can we rein it in and constrain it. Uh, um, so constrain negative behavior. That was really the, the focus. And I, I do think that design thinking very much um, corresponds to this, I think, next phase that you've been describing, that I think we need to move towards if we uh, don't want to just merely focus on, on uh, deterring uh, bad behavior, but I, resilience, organizational resilience against ethical misconduct also requires that people in the organization are capable to resist, to, to respond, you know, to intervene against, so to engage in positive uh, ethical behaviors that help sustain uh, the, 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 the ethical values of the organization. And I think that hasn't been focused on enough in our field. And uh, so the, this emphasis that um, human-centered design places on understanding the user really can help us overcome this lopsided focus on, on, on let's say, a human deficiency. Um, and uh, because, you know, if we, if we look closely at employees, if we really empathize with them, uh, if we uh, look how they behave in day-to-day in, in -day work life, then we will notice that um, by no means are they only, you know, uh, let's say potential offenders or risk factors. Um, we do see that a variety or a majority of people, I should say, um, has a desire and a capacity um, to to uh, live and to within an organization that that values fairness, justice, respectful treatment, um, to work for a company that once ha has a positive uh, impact on society, contributes something positive. You know, I think uh, walkouts, uh, employee walkouts, are a manifestation of that uh, that we have seen over the last few years um, in, in a variety of companies. Uh, we also know from a variety of studies, be it from the ethic, uh, Ethics and Compliance Initiative or be it from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, uh, year after year we see in surveys that employees are the primary source for, for detecting uh, fraud, for detecting misconduct. Uh, many employees, uh, you know, create, um, take, t t uh, accept a, a considerable amount of risks for their own uh, career. Um, by 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 speaking up, by uh, by by becoming a whistleblower, so the all of these are examples that demonstrate that employees have a positive capacity for something that the the uh, psychologist that um, that I admire a lot, Albert Bandura, uh, calls moral agency, um, and uh, he emphasizes this this capacity for what he calls promotive moral agency. So it is not exhausted simply by refraining from doing bad things, uh, it also encompasses the capacity of every human being to participate in the shaping of social norms and, and also standing up and helping to de defend, maintain, uh, 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 and help evolve these social norms. And um, 
this, this negative deficit-based view is an, um, and approach towards employees, I think, is, is what can really disengage employees. If we go to employees and we approach them as potential offenders, um, that is not something that appeals to somebody who reads a code, who sits in a training, who goes to a reporting website. Um, but if we approach people as potential allies, with the capacity to, to participate in the shared responsibility of upholding ethical values in the organization. That is, a, that is an approach, that's a message uh, that people can, um, can, can, can uh, uh, you know, um, embrace and participate in. Uh, and so this human-centered approach speaks exactly to that point, to broaden our ex uh, understanding, recognize, yes, of course, uh, some people do bad things under certain uh, 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 circumstances. We need to guard against that. But, but then it also encompasses this question of how can we uh, engage people and harness uh, the collective capacity, human capacity of all employees in the organization to help defend uh, the ethical uh, values that we hold dear. Karsten, the um, ACFE, uh, Association of Certified Fraud Examiner, tells us annually in their report to the nations that, as you correctly note, the largest um, detection of fraud is through whistleblowing. But if I could take that a step further, because our colleagues at uh, ECI uh, published a report this year that showed that a vast majority of whistleblowers or reporters uh, of misconduct were willing to do so, even if it was at a personal cost to them. And so it strikes me that the moral agency you're talking about actually not only exists, it exists in the workplace, and it exists even more po po pointedly currently in best practices compliance programs in the form of a robust uh, speak-up culture and reporting culture, and that design thinking through uh, its user engagement really can harness not simply these um, behavioral psychology concepts, but things that are already a part of the compliance program. Would Have I tied that together in a way that makes sense to you? Yeah, that's exactly what I, what I was trying to get at, you know, that, that, um, uh, that there is, um, you know, that, that it's, it's about making the shift from a deficit-based view, as it's sometimes called, to a strength-based view that says people really have um, capabilities, you know, and and a good uh, building a, a strong ethical culture um, requires not only that uh, you know we compel people to abstain from from um, you know um, non-compliant behavior. It it really points us in an, into an entirely new direction, which is and and you said that early, and I, I thought that was uh, you know exactly to the point. It's about helping employees, helping them, um, you know, to fully actualize their human capacity um, to to engage in, um, in 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 yeah behaviors that help us uh, maintain maintain ethical values. So that and that is primarily through speak up culture. Absolutely, uh, you hit it on the nail there. Um, I think the best safeguard against misconduct is. Um, is sure you want a you want a hotline you want a whistleblowing system, but even more effective before that 
is a is a speak up culture where people you know can freely speak their mind not just as it relates to um, to to ethical conduct but on a daily basis as people uh, you know go about their work um, come up with ideas for improvement improvements or, or find things that don't work you know do we have an organization where uh, coming up with 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 improvement ideas and optimizing um, optimizing the business where that is something that somehow is the exclusive purview of of the higher ups of the boss and the team or is it something where we on a daily basis maintain a culture of 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 seeking input from employees uh, in the interest of uh, you know the continuous improvement of of the organization and if we have this type of of speak up culture i think it it will it will really help uh, the resilience of the organization also as it comes to uh, to ethical issues Carson, there's another thing that strikes me in listening to you about design thinking that I think the academic research has borne out, and I would point you uh, point our listeners to Dr. Kyle Welch and his analysis of whistleblower reports, anonymized whistleblower reports, um, made available to him by Navex Global. And what he found was that there was a, a material difference and here I'm using material in the financial accounting sense, so that means 5%, uh, reduction in overall litigation and regulatory enforcement costs by companies that not had, that, excuse me, did not simply have a speak-up culture, but they coupled that with a listen-up culture so that it was a an entire culture of reporting and reporting systems that would take that information in and then either... Uh, investigate, or if it was a business process uh, improvement, incorporate that uh, so that uh, they could make the company run more efficiently. And it also strikes me that design thinking incorporates the listen-up part of a speak-up culture. And I know many compliance professionals struggle with, I understand having the reporting system, Tom, but I'm not sure I understand how to teach or train or instruct on the listen-up part, but design thinking has the listen-up part actually built into the process because it's not simply a up-down, left-right, one-way form of communications. It's really a two-way form of communication. So as, as we move towards the end of this episode, I was wondering if I might get your thoughts about why the listening part in the design thinking process by the design team is so critical critical in addition to the engagement of the users. Mm. No, you make a, again an excellent point there and, and drawing the analogy between uh, you know the, the conversation we have in ethics and compliance around the importance of listening up. I think that's a nascent conversation, right? There's a lot more emphasis on speak up. The onus is put on the employee to kind of you know, be courageous and, and, and say what they have to say. But uh, the, 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 the flip side, of course, is the importance of listening up. And um, yes, you're absolutely right. This is, uh, this is really core to, to the way that the design thinking process is, is structured. Um, there, is, there are various points throughout such a design thinking process uh, where design thinkers use, use methodologies uh, to make sure that everybody um, has an opportunity to share their ideas, um, so design thinking processes, um, uh, what makes them what what makes them uh, unique is that they consist of a 
um, uh, recurring sequence of um, a divergent, uh, divergent thinking and convergent thinking. So divergent thinking is all about expanding our our understanding about you know developing brainstorming ideating a ton of ideas throwing them the, at the wall and then the convergent piece is about um, uh, analyzing evaluating zeroing in on the things that work best on, on the key insights but that we gain from that expensive research that we previously did um, but uh, I say this to to draw attention to this divergent part and for instance in a design thinking process yeah, you'll, you'll often find that people have an ideation um, session, a brainstorming session. And um, rather than, you know, the conventional type of, of conversation where people sit around the table, some people speak, others listen, um, and or, or some people throw out ideas and others maybe uh, criticize them right away. Design thinking really makes sure that everybody gets to articulate. That often happens with the famous post-its. Uh, um, or sticky notes, as they are also called, and um, and so so it doesn't matter what your status is, um, uh, etc. Uh, every everybody will 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 take notes, put them on the wall, and they are there for everyone to see. Uh, so so this is just one example of how the design thinking process um, really um, invites people. And that's kind of the listening part to say, people, we now want to hear from all of you. Uh, and it creates this breadth of information, breadth of ideas, and it really gives you a good, accurate understanding of what the group as a whole uh, thinks and feels. Um, so it's, yeah, list, it's, it's um, I think, a, an organization that adopts a design thinking as, an, as a modus operandi, if you will, um, is really incre incredibly well equipped uh, to, to, to nurture this kind of dialogue consisting of both speak up and listen up. Absolutely. Question, uh, now we are uh, at the end of our time for this episode, but before we leave, I was wondering if you had any tips or suggested reading for our listeners uh, for any of the topics we've touched upon in this episode and also if any of our listeners wanted to get in contact with you about any of the topics we've talked about or design thinking in general how could they do so uh, all right yeah so let's start with your first question um, some some of my favorite readings um, so the standard uh, book on on human-centered design uh, in my view is, is, is one called the design of everyday things by Don Norman um, who's sometimes by some considered the father of human-centered design. Um, there's also an, a very good book by Kat Holmes called Mismatch, How Inclusion Shapes Design. And there she shows, um, she talks about human-centeredness as it relates to people with uh, disability and their relation to their, the environment in which they live. And she, she shows that um, disability we don't have to see it so much as an equality of a person, but it's really a quality of the relationship between a person, their unique needs, capabilities, and skills, and the way that their, their living environment is designed. And I thought this was a very uh, a powerful idea. Um, yeah, and I would also point to, to, to um, an article I've published on LinkedIn um, called Human-Centered Design and an engaging ethics and compliance program serves users' needs. 
um, you can look that up on, on, on my profile. And uh, yeah, I invite everybody who, uh, who is interested in this topic, wants to discuss it, to, to get in touch with me. My email is uh, karsten.tams um, at emergence.com. Um, and yeah, or, or, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Carson, I look forward to continuing our conversation, and I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode, where we begin to uh, explore the design thinking framework and really take a, a deep dive into co-creation. So thanks again. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Design Thinking and Compliance. Carson and I have put together a package of resources for you if you'd like additional information on design thinking. They're all listed in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions, please contact Carson or myself directly. Once again, our contact information is in the show notes. If you'd like something a little bit different, check out Effing Argentina, where with my co-host Greg Greenberg, we take up 11 tales of exasperation in modern American life. It's a little bit different, but it's a whole lot of fun. Also on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again.